traditionally attackers have not been tactically trained. Uh, they are not coming in with a fully thought through game plan. They're, they're usually on an emotional power trip and we want to confuse them. We want them to struggle with what their plan was and why it's not going what we planned. We want them to say, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I'll come back and try another day uh, so we can try to deal with them outside the building. Welcome to the Rain Insights on Security Podcast with Brian Lynch. Brian's guest is Jason Horner, Safewood Designs. They'll be talking about ballistic-resistant materials for both commercial and residential applications. Let's listen in. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we'll be discussing ballistic-resistant materials, their strategic use as part of an overall security game plan. So, Jason, let's start with the different types of ballistic materials and the reasons you might choose one over the other. Sure. Uh, well, there's really three different types. Uh, there's common types anyways. Uh, there's Kevlar. Uh, the problem with Kevlar is it's typically molded for a single application. Uh, oftentimes it could be used in, in aspects of body armor to a degree. Uh, the problem is it's, it's kind of a one-time use and it's incredibly expensive. Uh, <clears throat> so we don't use it much. Um, there is ballistically rated steel. Uh, right now, especially, it's very hard to get. Uh, it's very expensive. Um, and it's not very user-friendly for people who are trying to do this uh, in construction projects because it needs to be cut with cutting torches. Um, and it's just, it's not very forgiving. Fiberglass, which is kind of the most common, uh, is what we primarily use. And mostly because it's the easiest to work with on site. So when you look at rooms that aren't always square, walls that aren't always uh, level and plumb, and having to deal with outlets and switches and other things that are going to go into the walls, the fiberglass makes a great substra uh, substrate because it can be modified on site if it needed to be. Uh, also, one of the big differences between fiberglass and steel, uh, if steel is behind your sheetrock and you go to try to mount uh, you know, closet rods or any type of wall hangings that you might have, Obviously, the steel is very hard to drill into. It's not going to be very conducive to that installation, where the fiberglass can be drilled into pretty easily. Uh, it can be uh, screwed to to hang, uh, you know, pictures or closet rods or whatever you might be hanging off the walls. So we recommend fiberglass unless there's some specific application that we're dealing with <clears throat> that would require something else. The the UL levels are uh, typically used in the fiberglass and the ballistic steel. Uh, NIJ is typically in the Kevlar side or the body armor side. Uh, but for the UL levels, three through eight are the most common uh, used. The UL three uh, being handguns up to 44 mag and the UL eight being long guns up to 30 caliber 7.62 type rounds. So the other UL levels that are in there, uh, four, five, uh, six and seven deal with uh, single shot or or lower caliber shots. Uh, when you get into the AR-15 platforms, the five five six rounds, the two two three rounds uh, are all covered when you go up to level eight. So when we start talking about the long guns, we generally recommend going right to level eight. Uh, it's not that much more of a cost increase to jump to those higher that higher UL level, and it will offer the protection uh, all the way up to those thirty caliber and higher power rifle rounds. Thanks, Jason. Very good overview. Um, I think the next part of our discussion, uh, which would be of interest to our listeners, 
Uh, let's let's talk about the commercial use of these ballistic materials, and uh, in, in two particular areas. Why should we use them? What is the action imperative? And number two, where should they typically be deployed? And then we'll get into a little bit of the specifics about each one of these three types. Sure. So the placement of the level three or eight is highly contingent on the protective nature in any given building scenario where we're trying to thwart an attacker or protect occupants. Um, the biggest thing we want to move for is the aesthetic. It's critically important to us um, and a big differentiator for us in the marketplace that the protective features blend seamlessly into the space. Uh, there are two kind of important reasons for that. One is, you know, people want to be uh, in a warm, inviting environment. They don't want to have steel uh, and aluminum that's cold. It feels like a prison. Um, <clears throat> and secondly, uh, we don't want to know an, an attacker to know uh, that any one thing is different. So if we have a hallway full of doors and one of those rooms is a safe room door, uh, we don't want to go from uh, all wood frames and wood doors to a wood door and a metal frame, or worse yet, a metal door and a metal frame, because that attacker is going to see that and know there's something different about that. And it really gives them the ability to focus firepower or whatever kind of, um, you know, implements of destruction they may have brought with them. We want to confuse them. We want to make them go from door to door. We want them to check. We want to burn time. Uh, you know, the average attack in a, in a school or a commercial setting, generally nationwide lasts about five to seven minutes. And any of that time we can consume with having an attacker be confused about where to go to find people, uh, struggle to get through any different, uh, any different doors or impediments we might put in the way, uh, gains those people survivability quickly as, as police are responding. The other thing it'll do, it'll confuse attackers. Uh, traditionally, attackers have not been tactically trained. Uh, they are not coming in with a fully thought through game plan. They're, they're usually on an emotional power trip. And we want to exploit that because we want to confuse them. Uh, we want them to struggle with what their plan was and why it's not going the way they planned. We want them to say, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I'll come back and try another day. Uh, so we can try to deal with them outside the building with authorities away from away from any victims. <clears throat> so that's where it comes very important to match the details. When we start talking about, you know, style and rail doors that may have molding profiles on them, we want those details to be uh, matched perfectly to the rest of the details in the building. You know, number one for aesthetics, but again, for number two, to hide uh, where those protective features are. So, and when we talk about fit in, um, there's several different things we want to talk about. We want the, the systems to be virtually undetectable to the untrained eye. Um, and we want to use those systems so that if there is security staff or police responding and they're aware of the security features of the building, they can use those as a tactical advantage. Uh, they can get cover and concealment behind these things uh, and wait for an opportune time uh, to, to, to uh, you know, deal with the attacker on, on really on their terms instead of being kind of at the, the mercy of a dynamic firefight. So the, the integration of all these different things, uh, you know, depends a lot on each structure. It depends on the threat environment. It depends on what we're uh, trying to protect from. It depends on how many people we're trying to protect, how much square footage we're trying to protect. So the, the systems, while uh, effectively 
similar throughout every step of a protective feature are going to uh, repeat themselves uh, and change in their protective feature depending on where we might be in a in a commercial environment. Yeah, all good points. And uh, whether it's aesthetics, as you mentioned, uh, cover concealment, what's the nature of the threat, who are we trying to protect, where are they in the particular building, all important criteria to be to be used in the strategic application of, of this um, type of uh, material. Uh, before we leave commercial, Jason, I think uh, a discussion around placement of the materials in a commercial uh, business setting. Uh, what drives that discussion and, and how do you help clients figure out what space or spaces should be or should have the BR material? Sure. So let's just use a live example. It's probably easiest for everybody to understand. Um, so if we use a, a, you know, a federal courthouse, for instance, <clears throat> generally federal courthouses have, have decorative entryways and generally there's uh, deputies or sheriffs <clears throat> or something of that nature very close to the front doors. Um, the idea being that we want to deal with any any real threat coming in from the outside as fast as we can and then have time behind those security forces for people to respond and react. So in a situation like that, if, if that was the first uh, kind of line of defense to a threat, we're going to want to think about the approach of the threat. So in that particular case, it's relatively easy for somebody to approach a building like that with a long gun, an AR-15 or equivalent, um, and, and engage with those security forces. They won't have much warning uh, and they won't have much visibility line of sight to see that threat coming from a long ways away, nor will they have been notified at this point that a threat is underway. So in those particular environments at that front line of defense, we'd want to employ kind of the highest defense levels we could. So we would recommend going immediately up to the level eight protection there. And there's a couple things we want to do there. One is we want to give those officers time to, to react. Um, you know, the immediate instinct, even for a well-trained officer, they're going to freeze for a second and they're going to say, okay, wow, that's a threat. Is it a real gun? They have to go through a decision-making process to understand uh, what the threat is. Is it real? Is it approaching me? How are we going to deal with it? Um, now they're trained, so they're going to make that decision relatively quickly. But we want to give them that initial time to respond and react uh, and, and to make that decision. So now once they've made that decision to engage, we want those features to also be defensive positions for them. So in that particular case, we would want uh, you know, a shutter type system that was up against the wall that they could swing out and deploy uh, and use as cover and concealment, uh, again, to try to triangulate an assailant uh, so that any one officer could get a shot to, uh, to stop the threat. As we move past that, um, into a let's say again you use a federal courthouse uh, it's going to be much easier for a person to conceal a handgun uh, to get through security now once that weapon is past security uh, obviously there's no more security so we're going to want to deal with uh, the more likely handgun threat as we go towards courtrooms or high profile areas whether it be prisoner uh, security or you know any of those types of features so when we get into a courtroom for instance 
we're going to want to layer that defense again. We're going to want to have a lockdown option uh, if the threat is detected in the lobby for the courtroom entry doors. So that if somebody were able to get past, they would have to also defeat the courtroom entry door uh, to gain access. Again, all of this is buying time for the people behind to find uh, safe shelter further back into the building. So uh, as we enter the courtroom, again, we've got probably a deputy uh, where we're going to want to provide them some initial reaction time, but we can back down from the level eight typically in our recommendations because, again, the most likely threat is a handgun. Uh, so as that deputy either tries to respond and react in that courtroom situation uh, or worse yet is taken out by the assailant, we want to get the judge and the jury and as many people in that space time to respond and react and move behind cover. We want to work with people's natural instincts. Um, so if your initial instinct is going to be to duck hit the ground, which is what most people will do, we want to have jury walls in that particular case that have the level three ballistic protection. We want to have the judge's desk have the ballistic protection. We want the back walls into the judge's chamber to be uh, protected with that level three. So that should an assailant be able to thwart all those defenses and those uh, the uh, sheriffs or deputies that might be there and go after the judge in the quote unquote chambers or, you know, last fallback room, then we want to step back up because, uh, as you know, it takes a lot of time for uh, even tactical teams to clear a building. It's gonna take them a lot of time to figure out where that assailant is in that building. And that judge or whoever that critical person is gonna need an extended period of time where they would be safe in that final fallback room. So in that particular case, we would recommend going back up to the level eight into that, that uh, chambers room or the fallback room so that even if the person has a significant amount of firepower, uh, the room itself will withstand a significant and prolonged attack, giving time for those deputies or sheriffs to respond and react to that situation, figure out an entry plan and figure out how to get in and deal with the threat. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Great stuff. And I think as the listener will attest, uh, the deployment of ballistic resistant materials it should be really part of an overall strategic security game plan it's just not uh let's let's construct something or let's make some changes and let's let's put some br materials uh it really it really takes into account the overall strategy that you're trying to uh protect people uh you're looking at layered you're looking at time you're looking at cover versus concealment all the things that you noted critically important uh, before we leave uh, the commercial aspect, and and just to uh, talk a little bit about Jason, I know uh, in in your in your uh, your firm really does a lot of work around this. Uh, let's move into the commercial space where you may not have a security apparatus in the in the uh, in the basement or the uh, opening uh, ground floor of a building. Uh, people can walk in. Uh, they can look at the registry and decide where they want to go. You have an open kind of floor plan, or there's no really uh, layered security that that you can see. In something like that, how would that change the dynamic here? And what what structure and strategy would one employer want to consider? So a commercial environment like that, you know, obviously they're open, they're trusting, uh, they're, they're assuming that most people are there to do good, not harm. So there we want to deal with kind of the first person that's going to interact. So in a, a large tower environment, let's say, uh, 
um, the reception desk is going to be the first line of defense where they're going to look for unusual behavior. They're going to look for something, or maybe the threat outright presents itself. Uh, we want to make sure that person uh, really has time to hit the the overall security panic button. So you're absolutely right. As part of a a well-defined uh, security plan to protect people, there has to be communication. There has to be communication with outside uh, authorities. There has to be communication inside the building so that we can uh, talk to people while they're in the building about where it's safe, where it's not safe, where threats might be, where the police should move to or from. Um, <clears throat> so we want that person to have those few seconds to follow, again, follow their natural reactions. They're gonna hit the floor when that threat presents. Uh, we wanna give them the time to hit that button um, because you know they're the first likely victim. But what we wanna do at that point is minimize further loss of life. So if we can give that person a, a plan and a path to escape, that's even better. But the first point they need to do is hit that overall panic button. So then if you extrapolate from there and you move from whether it's a large tower or a single uh, small office building, for instance, a single, single business building, <clears throat> the theory really is still the same. We want that person at the front desk to have the time to respond and react and hopefully escape. But we want those people behind to be able to immediately fall back, whether it's their own offices that are uh, have have ballistic doors and a ballistic wall so they shelter in place they lock their doors and they wait or <clears throat> if we have an open office environment we want to figure out centralized rooms whether it be conference rooms or copy rooms uh, copy rooms are generally good because they generally don't have windows they're generally in the center of the building um, or the office space where people can really naturally react and run to <clears throat> one of the keys of these rooms uh, that we talk with about people when they when they do these things is there has to be somebody that's on guard the door there. <clears throat> so somebody that's in the office regularly, maybe somebody that's ex-military or somebody that's at a minimum comfortable with, with guns. Uh, we want them on that door <clears throat> so that if an attack happens, their sole job is to get as many people into that room as, as they can and then be aware of the likely attack path so that they have to be the person that decides to shut that door and lock it. Um, if they do that and do that well, they will save lots of lives. Now, there, if people don't respond and react in time and they get caught outside the rooms, there's not a lot we can do about that. Um, because the dynamics of a, of a shooting event will go so fast. But, you know, that person at that point is really responsible for security of everybody in that room, making sure that door is locked, making sure whatever communication they have, they're talking to the outside world to say the attacker is here, they're right outside of the room, uh, because we want to move authorities through the building as fast as humanly possible at that point. Uh, because as you know, and I know, <clears throat> it takes forever for a tactical team to clear a sizable building, especially if they're not familiar with it. And so we want to help get them to the incident as fast as possible by using those couple of different tools and the, the communication that would be in some of those rooms. Yes, critical, critical points, uh, particularly around plan of action and communication, uh, both outside and inside. Very, very important in communicating what the problem is uh, with the people that need to know that are in the building, but also the authorities, as you noted. Um, bef and one last question, and I think then we'll get into the residential space. 
Can you uh, give uh, a good definition or an example of the difference between cover and concealment? We always see that, and it's really important, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, what we've seen in, you know, a, a, the majority of the recent school shootings uh, is attackers generally don't like to shoot inanimate objects. They don't like to shoot through walls. They generally don't like to shoot through doors um, because number one, it consumes time. And number two, it consumes ammunition. And, and most of these shooters are not bringing in thousands of rounds. They're bringing in dozens or hundreds at most. <clears throat> and so they want to use the power they have uh, as economically as they can. So uh, when we look to uh, the types of defenses there, we want to make sure that we're offering those, those different things to slow that attacker down. Um, you know, understand that they're on an emotional power trip and it's only going to last five to seven minutes, which again, will seem like an eternity, but, uh, you know, we want to give those people that as much time to respond and react to that as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and, and implicit in all of this is the training aspect, right, Jason? I mean, we have a plan, let's say company XYZ, uh, there's a room that is a ballistic resistant material room, a safe room. Uh, we want, if, if, if feasible, our employees to go to that room if it's safe as part of the run, hide, fight scenario, right? Um, but the key is, is to train to that. And, um, you know, you mentioned, um, the, the cover and the concealment in line of sight, how important getting out of line of sight is and whether that's in a, a safe room or a room, uh, you're, you're, you're concealed in, in, in a non-safe room, you're covered in a safe room, meaning that the round typically can't go through the wall, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, we, what we saw at, uh, Parkland on the, I think it was on the third floor. One of the, the students was shot through the door multiple times. So in this particular case, the, uh, you know, I don't know the shooter, but I believe the shooter knew the victim was behind the door cause they were, they were talking. Uh, and so that door provided concealment, uh, but that particular door did not provide cover. So in that particular case, the shooter did shoot through the door, striking the victim multiple times um, because I think that he knew they were there, uh, human barricading that door. So if we're going to have people like that that are, are willing to stand in the line of fire, we want to make sure that not only do they have uh, cover uh, to stop those bullets, but concealment, because that gives people in the room the ability to move around the room. Uh, you know, and I believe in Parkland, we had a similar incident where there was, they actually had red tape on the floor in the Parkland shooting, I believe, that would kind of define the line of sight to the safe corner of the room. Uh, and I, you know, again, I, I don't know all the details on this, but I believe there were kids that were shot that couldn't get in there because there were too many people in the room. Uh, that were inside that or outside that line of sight coverage. So, you know, they had uh, concealment to a degree, but they didn't have enough cover. Um, <clears throat> so it, 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 it's a very, you know, fine line to walk. We want to have open inviting spaces, but we need them to be able to convert to concealed covered spaces, you know, quickly in the event of a shooter so that the shooter simply 
and the hope moves on to a softer target down the hall. And hopefully they don't find a softer target because all the rooms are protected similarly or everybody's, you know, moved on to a cover room. Um, you know, because again, on the five to seven minute window, uh, we want that shooter to, you know, put down the gun and walk away similarly to what happened in Parkland and Santa Fe. Yeah, so let's move to the other, one of the other uses of ballistic resistant materials, which is the residential use case. Uh, and again, as with commercial use, the, the why and the where uh, relative to ballistic material usage um, and, and what drives the impetus to use this material in your home. Yeah, so in your home, um, is a very different environment than in a commercial or a public environment. You know, in your home, you're talking about a very small group of people that can be, you know, very well trained to respond and react to a situation. Uh, we're not dealing with new employees. We're not dealing with, you know, outside parties generally. So when we talk about a residential environment, you know, really understanding the threat environment uh, is is key because number there's a couple of things we want to do. We want to make sure that the person feels safe in their home, and if they're thinking about putting in ballistic protection, there's probably a reason. Uh, so if we can understand as specifically as we can the type of threat that has been made, the type of threat that has been perceived, um, and then we try to solve around those threats so the person feels, number one, secure in their home, uh, but in the event of attack, we've, we've taken away the most likely uh, paths to the attack. So I'll give you an example of a home we did uh, here in the upper Midwest. We had a uh, a, a family that had a very specific threat. It was a very, uh, very well thought through threat. The threat came um, from a person who claimed they were going to take a, a reasonably long range shot at a person uh, in their kitchen through the kitchen window. And, you know, that's a very odd, well detailed threat which led us to believe that somebody had already possibly even scoped this shot out, had thought about it enough to approach how they were going to do it. And so as I talked to the family, I said, okay, well, look, number one, you know, that's a very direct threat. We can fix that quickly. So let's, let's look around the surrounding area. Let's look at the, the, um, topographical let's see where we think that that might come from so we can protect you know different angles if we have to long story short on that one is we ended up putting in ballistic protection on uh, a couple of different windows in the kitchen that had a topographical advantage for a longer range shot so the next step was let's understand if that glass ever turns white from the bullet impact what are you going to do where are you going to go you know, what's your likely path of egress? Because in those high stress situations, fine motor skills disappear. We want to follow natural gut instinct and, and reaction to that situation. So they, they kind of looked around the room and they said, well, we're going to go that way and we're going to go up the stairs to the bedrooms. And I said, okay, great. Let's walk it. Um, it turns out that they had a couple of nice doors there that led up to the stairwell that led up to the upper floor. And I said, look, if, if, that, if that person takes that shot, likely they're going to try a ground assault. At least we need to be prepared for it if they decide that they didn't succeed and they're going to succeed today. So we put in barriers inside the building or inside the home where uh, the pair of doors uh, were beautiful arch top 
uh, raised panel style and rail molding doors. Uh, and we, they looked exactly like the remainder of the doors in the house. And I said, okay, let's put these in. Now let's go upstairs. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the kids room. You're going to go to your room. You, they said, no, we're going to go to the master bedroom. We're going to grab the kids. And I said, okay, let's do the same exact thing. But up here, uh, it's very important that those doors were exactly the same as the rest of the doors in the house, because what we did was we made those doors ballistically rated and we made the wall and the hallway ballistically rated. So now if an attacker should breach the house, should breach that first pair of doors at the bottom of the stairs, number one, we've gotten the family time to get up and get safe and get settled, get on the comms with whoever they might be on the comms with. But now as that assailant comes upstairs, no different than the police are slow to tactically clear a building. This slows the attack down because now the attacker doesn't know the difference between the master bedroom doors, the kids' bedroom doors, the office doors. So it's going to take them time to work through all those different rooms to narrow down where the, where the family might be. Uh, all the while, in the bedroom, we also made the closet ballistically rated. In this case, we went up all the way to level eight and we did it on the walls, the floor, uh, and the outside adjoining walls to any other rooms. So now in theory, the family, if the, if the assailant identifies where they are, he can't shoot through the walls. He can't shoot through the floor from below, and he can't shoot through the walls from the adjoining rooms. Uh, again, in this particular case, a police response time was estimated to be less than five minutes. So really what we wanted to do was give that family enough time to be in there, be reasonably comfortable given the environment, and be on the phone with police to say, we can hear the attacker, he's in our bedroom, uh, so that the police can move as fast as they can through the house to get to that, that assailant. So understanding people's natural inclination and how they're going to react inside their home is critical in this particular environment because then we can design those defenses so that they work with the, with the family uh, in an event of an attack like that. Yeah, Jason, that's a terrific example. And, uh, you know, again, it's understanding uh, the threat landscape, having an action plan, and as you noted, providing the time necessary for the authorities to arrive in a safe space. Uh, so Jason, uh, really uh, appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing your expertise. I appreciate being on and uh, you know, glad that this is starting to become a, a bigger topic for people because you know, there are people out there that need security and there are people out there that intend to do harm and, and you know, we're doing everything we can to make the spaces people live, work, play, and worship safer. And I think the information you provide is going to be a big help to, the, to our listeners. And uh, it should be part of an overall security game plan about how am I protecting the people and the spaces in my life. Exactly. Thanks again, Jason. All right. Thanks for having me. Jason Horner is an expert in physical security with Safewood Designs, which creates ballistic-resistant physical security for businesses and homes. Brian Lynch is Rain's Executive Director of Safety and Security. Rain offers a portfolio of security and risk management solutions and is trusted by more than 400 leading corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions. Become a Rain member today. Visit RainNetwork.com for details. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Thanks for listening.